We have been studying this letter, which really is a sermon turned into a letter that dates from the first century. As best we can tell, it was written to Jewish Christians in the first century who were residing in Rome. Little helpful context. They've already begun to suffer some persecution. Later in the letter, it references how they've already suffered the confiscation of their property, but they've not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood. But the clear implication is that's coming. Things are heating up. So this is a, a letter. The, the writer actually calls it a word of encouragement. It's, it really reads like a sermon that he wrote out as a letter, right? Um, and we get to chapter 7 here, and it's interesting. It's an entire chapter on this guy who's really a pretty obscure figure in the Old Testament. Now, maybe you, you know this, but maybe you don't. Um, at the time that Jesus came into the world, the Jews had the Old Testament. That was their scripture, okay? And there is this little place in the book of Genesis, chapter 14, that tells this story that a guy named Melchizedek shows up. They don't really say anything about where he came from. He just kind of shows up. And Abraham, who is the father of many nations and the father of the Jewish people, he has a little interaction with this guy, Melchizedek. And that's it. And then later in the book of Psalms, which were what God's people, the Jews, used in public worship, in Psalm 110, there's another little reference to Melchizedek. But there's not much about Melchizedek in the Bible. So when you get to chapter 7 of Hebrews, you may ask the question, why is there an entire chapter devoted to this guy, Melchizedek? In light of the fact that these people are beginning to suffer persecution, why spend an entire chapter on this guy named Melchizedek? Now, if I put you to the to the test, and I made you give me an answer. Maybe you'd give me like the answer that some of you probably learned was always the right answer in Sunday school. And what's that? Jesus, Jesus right. So the reason that we spend an entire chapter on Melchizedek is because of Jesus. But I do think we can say a little bit more than that. Uh, particularly, what we can say is, Jesus, when he came into the world, brought a revolution in the understanding of the Jews who would come to follow him. When he came, when he died, and then when he was risen from the dead, because you've got to understand this, Jewish monotheistic men who hung out with Jesus for three years, watched him die, and then three days later, were running around saying that he had risen from the dead. Like, we know that without the Bible. We know that from Jewish and Roman historians, okay? So, what happened to make that occur? And then, how does that change the way these Jewish people began to understand even their own Bible? Honestly, the only way you can make sense of an entire chapter devoted to Melchizedek is Jesus, particularly the revolution of Jesus, in particular, 
the way Jesus' death and resurrection revolutionized the way these early Jewish people who became Christians thought about their own scriptures. It caused these Jewish men and women to go back to their own Bible to see if they'd missed something. Have you ever had that experience? Maybe college did that for you. Maybe you take a religion class and the professor mentions something or brings up a story. You're like, what in the world? That's in the Bible. I've never heard that before. And you might go back to the Bible and read it and say, did I miss something? I mean, I grew up going to church, but I never heard about that story. That's kind of crazy. And it would be helpful if you, know, you were also you know, aware that a lot of people thought it was crazy. And people thought about why that might be in the Bible. There's lots of thoughts about that kind of stuff out there, but that's beside the point. If, if these Jewish men and women went back to the Bible in light of the revolution of Jesus to see if they'd missed something, this is one of the things that they felt like they missed. And it became such an important thing that they devoted an entire chapter to it in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. N.T. Wright, who's one of the great New Testament scholars of our day, tries to, to express like what the revolution that Jesus created for people and how they read their Bible, what that was like. Because he, he wants to make the point that it wasn't just that Jesus died and was resurrected that made everybody go around and say, this friend of ours, actually he was God. It was his death and resurrection in light of what he had claimed all through his life. Get that. It wasn't just the fact that he died and rose from the dead that made his followers say, well, he was God. It was what he had claimed and then what the resurrection did to authenticate those claims. Here's the way N.T. Wright, one of the great New Testament scholars of our day, says. He says, suppose one of the two brigands crucified alongside Jesus, because you might remember he was crucified and there was a thief on either side of him. What if one of these two brigands crucified alongside Jesus had been raised from the dead? People would have said the world was a very odd place. They would not have said that that brigand was therefore divine. No, the basic meaning of the resurrection, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, was that Jesus was indeed the Messiah as he claimed. The claims the death, the resurrection, all go together. As I, meaning N.T. Wright, have argued elsewhere, this led quickly within earliest Christianity to the belief that his death was therefore not a defeat, but a victory. The conquest of the powers of evil and the liberation, the exodus of God's people and in principle of the world. In Jesus, in other words, Israel's God, the world's creator, had accomplished at last the plan he had been forming ever since the covenant was forged in the first place. In Jesus, God had rescued Israel from her suffering and exile. And then the final step, in Jesus, God had done what in the Bible God had said he would do himself. Remember, we just read Isaiah 59. I'm going to take matters in my own hand. That's what Jesus claimed he was doing. And when he died, it looked like that had come to other, other ruin. But when he was resurrected, just as he said he would be, these people had to go back and read their Bible again and see maybe we missed something. And that's how you get to Melchizedek. 
It's a matter of rethinking, N.T. Wright says, still very Jewishly, how these things could be. How do we make sense of the fact that this one that we know, that we hung out with, that we ate and broke bread with, we saw him do these miracles, we heard him teach these things, we didn't quite understand what he was talking about, then he's resurrected from the dead, and Jesus himself is the one who, on the road to Emmaus, takes two of these disciples and begins with the beginning with Moses, all the way through the scriptures, explains how all the scriptures are about him. The Christians didn't just do this on their own, and this is the only way, really, to make sense of the New Testament, and the way it connects to the Old Testament, but also builds upon it, is that Jesus himself very self-consciously said, I am what all the scriptures are pointing to. Well, let's look at chapter 7 of Hebrews. Now, the very end of chapter 6 mentions Jesus being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then we pick up here with verse 1. The writer's going to talk a little bit about Melchizedek and why he matters. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's literally what Melchizedek in Hebrew means, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Salem is like shalom. It means peace, right? So he's the king of peace by virtue of the fact that he's the king of Salem. And Melchizedek means that his name is king of righteousness. He is without father or mother or genealogy, which is fascinating because the book of Genesis almost always records people's genealogy whenever it brings a character into the story. But Melchizedek, there's no mention of his mother or father or his genealogy. So it says that he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See how great this man, Melchizedek, was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. In other words, Abraham meets Melchizedek coming back after winning this great victory. And he meets this king of Salem, and he basically bows down to him, asks the king of Salem to bless Abraham, and gives him a tithe, a tenth of everything that he's just gotten. You don't do that to somebody who's your lesser. He treats Melchizedek like he's greater than Adam or Abraham. That's a pretty remarkable thing, particularly because Abraham is the patriarch of the Jewish people. All right? So verse 5, and those descendants of Levi, Levi is a descendant of Abraham, right? Those descendants of Levi, meaning the priests who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, the other Jews. Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, again referring to Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, from the Levi priests, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him, meaning Abraham, who had the promises. 
It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. That's always how it works in this culture. In, the case, in one case, ties are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, what's he doing here? He's saying that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. The Levites were the Jews that offered the sacrifices and were in the temple, okay? So he's saying, look, if you look at this story carefully, you'll realize that the Levites have to be inferior to Melchizedek because Abraham, the patriarch, the one whom the Levites came from, offered tithe to these Levites, or to Melchizedek. Does that make sense? All right, now, Let's move on. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, that means through the Old Testament sacrifices, if perfection had been attainable, if it had, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another great priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Abraham. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Okay, what is all that about? Let me just explain it. Um, What he's basically saying is the Levitical priesthood didn't work. That's a pretty bold thing, especially in a day of religious pluralism, (laughs) because this is saying one is better than the other. They're not equally valid. The Levitical priesthood, the Old Testament sacrificial system, didn't really cleanse you from your sin. Later, a couple chapters as we get into this, a couple chapters later, the, the, the writer of Hebrews is going to say, one of the ways we know that is because you had to keep repeating the sacrifices over and over and over and over again. You never did enough. It never worked. It actually was pointing you to the fact that God was going to provide what was needed for your cleansing, for the removing of your shame, so that you could be in a perfect relationship with him again, as you had been in the garden before sin came into the world. God is committed to providing that. But the Levitical priesthood is not it. But there's this little story that seems very insignificant. But now, in light of Jesus, we realize that Jesus is a greater priest than all the Levitical priesthood. But how to make sense of this? Because he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah, and Judah doesn't have any priests. And the writer says, ah, but there is this Melchizedek. And there's this reference in Psalm 110 to one who would come and be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So built into the Old Testament is the idea that something better has to come. And Melchizedek is is sort of this picture of what is better than even the temple and the priesthood. Okay? Verse verse, uh, 15. 
This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. In other words, he's not descended from Judah, like the law says, but by the power of an indestructible life. He's talking about Jesus. For it is witnessed of him, and then this is the quote from Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is Psalm 110 speaking to? It's a prophecy, speaking of the one who would come. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest, talking about Jesus, with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, this is, now they open up the context of Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Look down at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those other Levitical high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which God gave, which came later, in Psalm 110, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, Melchizedek, that's a lot to get out of that little story. It's like a whole developed theology. Unless some people might think that it took, you know, centuries for kind of the church to wrestle with sort of these things. And, you know, people in the early days didn't really believe Jesus was God or exalted. It just sort of developed, kind of developed over the space of centuries. No, This is really sophisticated theological understanding, working with this Jewish context and trying to say, how do we make sense of what we've experienced? This Jewish man crucified and yet risen from the dead in power. How do we make sense of that? We better go back to the Bible and look and see if we missed something. And here's the thing, guys. We miss things all the time. We miss things all the time. Even well-meaning, serious students of the Bible miss things sometimes. Uh, I I read this fascinating article this morning. Now, you may not know Fleming Rutledge. She actually is an Episcopal priest. She was one of the first female Episcopal priests ordained in America. She's been married 50 years. She's an older woman now, right? And she wrote this blog post today that was pretty fascinating because she's a well-regarded preacher, writer, has numerous books that are, have sold very well. Um, she's not somebody well known in the kind of evangelical, you know, more conservative world, but she's a big deal, okay? Um, she writes this. Just a couple of months ago, she says, she was at her local bookstore and saw on the shelf a book by a guy named James Cone called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And then she says, basically, I wrote a book about the crucifixion, a book that I spent 20 years working on. I actually made a really big deal about the civil rights movement. I thought I knew a lot about it. 
somehow I completely missed this book. And she's ashamed. She actually says, this blog post, if I could ever have the chance, if my book on the crucifixion sells enough copies that we can do another pressing, this is the afterword that I want to put in there. Because if one thing, I felt bad just as a scholar that I missed this book, but then I read the book and I was like, I didn't just miss this book. I missed one of the key parallels with the cross in human history. And it was right there in front of me because I'm kind of quite a student of the civil rights movement and I still missed it. Here's what she says. I wrote at some length in the crucifixion, that's her book, about the particular evils of crucifixion as a method of execution in the Roman days, she's talking about. I argued that there was nothing else comparable to it in terms of prolonged sadistic cruelty displayed in public for the express purpose of dehumanizing a victim. I mentioned impaling and the Tudor method of hanging, drawing, and quartering, both methods, though unspeakably torturous, prolonged, and conspicuously public, failed to correspond to crucifixion because they were used for nobles as well as the lower orders, whereas crucifixion was reserved for slaves and insurrectionists. Roman citizens were never crucified, however plebeian they might have been. I drew a blank after that. To my shame, lynching did not occur to me. The aspect of lynching that corresponds to crucifixion, which she, all of a sudden she's read this book now, she's like, how did I miss this? She says, the aspect of lynching that corresponds to crucifixion is not just the sadism, the mobs, the violence, the impunity. Lynching was a quicker method, if you want to measure by that. The similarity between the two lies rather in their nature as public spectacle, even as entertainment. And it's deliberate dehumanizing of the victim we might well ask who, at the scene of a lynching, were the actual subhumans. It was a cruel, agonizing, and contemptible death, and when it was finally over, the lynching victim, like the crucified victim, was an unspeakably grisly, dangling horror for all to see. James Cone, she's talking about his book, quotes Paula Fredrickson, "'Crucifixion, first and foremost, is addressed to an audience.'" These features are often overlooked, when Christians reflect upon the cross. She goes on, she says, still I'm shocked that as James Cone himself documents, no white theologian made any connection between the horror of crucifixion and the horror of lynching. I am among them. To my dismay, the parallels are so obvious. The public nature of both methods of execution, the kangaroo court, the powerlessness of the victim's family and friends, the location chosen to invite a maximum number of witnesses, the permission and even participation of the authorities, the enjoyment of the onlookers who were invited to hurl abuse and insults, the obscenity of the accompanying rituals, the sexual shaming, the use of the method as a warning to other potential victims. These are some differences. There are some differences. Crucifixion was a more studied, intentional, prolonged mention sanctioned by the state, but the similarities are truly remarkable. And it is a wonder that, as Cone points out, no white religious thinkers have noticed them. Even people that study this stuff and should know better miss things all the time. What have we missed about the cross, I wonder? 
the thing that we think we know about. If you've been a Christian a long time, you might think, well, I know about the cross. I hear about it all the time. Have you thought about it, what the Romans thought about it? As a way to say to the others, don't you dare challenge us. Right? We don't think of it that way very much, do we? We don't really think of it as public spectacle. I remember when I was in college reading a little essay by A.W. Tozer, who I really like, called The Old Cross and the New. And this line has never, it's never left me. You know, what was that, 30 years ago? The, old, the new cross, people, what do you say? Um, today, we wear crosses around our neck. But in the first century, crosses wore men. And you just think about that. Sometimes I feel like we've domesticated the cross and not thought about it as terrorism. But that is what it was. What have we missed? See, the revolution of Jesus caused these early Christians to go back and read the Old Testament to see if they'd missed things. And they go back and through this new Jesus lens, they're like, whoa, this Melchizedek thing is, is really interesting because obviously Jesus is this sacrifice that all the other sacrifices were pointing to. He told us that. But is that just a new spin on something or was that actually already there and we missed it? And they find Melchizedek and they're like, oh, it was already there. So why is the priesthood of Melchizedek so important to the writer of Hebrews? Well, to understand that, you have to ask this question. What does it even mean to be a priest and why do you need one? Right? And here's the heart of it. A priest is one who intercedes. When you can't represent yourself because you can't even have access to God, a priest intercedes for you. This, of course, presupposes that we need a priest because we've been alienated from God. And that is what the Bible says is the natural condition of all human beings, that we're alienated from God, we're born alienated from God, and we need help to be reconciled to God. We need one who will intercede for us. And again, God had graciously taught the Jewish people that he was going to provide one who would intercede for them. But in what he provides, he's providing a sign pointing to something better. It'd be like well, for, you remember, the, the, the Hebrews here are tempted to go back to Judaism and turn away from Jesus. We talked about this last week, right? But what the writer of Hebrews is saying, you can't do that. Because now that this priesthood after the order of Melchizedek has come in Jesus, the sign that was pointing to it offers no refuge. It doesn't work anymore. It would be like, okay, we're going to go to Radnor lake, right? It would be like if you're going down Granny White and you see a sign that says Radnor and you just pull over right there. And you're like, here we are. No, you're not there, right? Signs point you to something else. Once Jesus has come, Judaism and the sacrifice system is a sign pointing you to what Jesus comes to do. And Jesus, what he does, actually works. 
It actually works. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is, is talking about at length here. The priesthood of Jesus is superior to the Levitical, Levitical priesthood. And here's the thing. You need a priesthood that actually works. You do it. And so he proves from Scripture that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And I kind of went through all that. I won't go back through all that again. But he, again, it focuses. Here's the little summary. The Bible doesn't tell us about Melchizedek's parents or children. And to be a Levitical priest, you had to prove you were descended from Levi. You had to prove it. You had to say, I was descended from Levi. You had to trace it. If you couldn't trace your lineage, you couldn't be a Levitical priest. But Melchizedek has no bloodline. The Bible doesn't tell us about his ancestors in Genesis, which I said is a strange thing. It almost seems intentional. It was, I think. And then Psalm 110 actually takes the fact that Melchizedek has no genealogy in Genesis and says, aha. See, Psalm 10 actually gets it. This Melchizedek priesthood is a priesthood forever. Whereas human priests die, human priests need to offer a sacrifice for their own sins. You, the one who is coming, will be a priest after Melchizedek forever with no end. And then he says, "Then look at the story. Even Abraham, the patriarch, understood that Melchizedek was superior to him. Does that make sense? But the ultimate reason, and this is where we're going to go with the next couple chapters of Hebrews, the ultimate reason that Jesus' priesthood is superior is because it fully dealt with sin and shame by taking sin and shame. Now, I don't know how much you think about the cross as being a place of shame. Because I think a lot of people, when I think about what did we miss, if you grew up in a typical kind of Bible-believing church, they probably talked a lot about forgiveness coming from the cross. They probably didn't talk nearly as much about shame being dealt with at the cross. But here's the thing. Jesus suffered shame at the cross, not just punishment. And honestly, sin should make us ashamed. See, the problem, half the problem is, the things that should make us ashamed don't, and the things that shouldn't make us ashamed do. We tend to feel ashamed sometimes about being human, about being finite, and sometimes we feel less shame about sin. As a matter of fact, it's one of the great judgments in the Bible is that there is no shame before their eyes. That's a way the Bible says these people are really far from God, right? But how does shame get dealt with? Shame gets dealt with because Jesus took shame and gives you beauty. Right? Shame is feeling like you're missing something. It's not just that I've done the wrong thing. I am the wrong thing. But Jesus took that. As a matter of fact, Colossians, Paul says that he was stripped and they made, he was made a public spectacle at the cross right? He was. He was shamed. He was stripped naked. And in doing that, he made a public spectacle of the powers and the principalities. In other words, he took shame, said, give me your best shot. 
And then he raised from the dead to show that it had been dealt with, right? Fully. Back to Fleming Rutledge. She explains James Cohn's insight. I actually had the opportunity to teach a couple weeks ago, or I guess it was, it was just, no, it was two weeks ago, about um, Negro spirituals, which is a topic I'm not an expert in, but I, I love it. And um, so I had got to spend a week or so just immersed in various books that I have about that. And um, James Cohn is, is a black liberation theologian. He passed away recently. But he has a great book on the spirituals and the blues that's a really important book um, if you ever want to understand uh, that kind of stuff. And so he talks a lot about the black church under the days of um, lynching and all these sorts of things and the way um, that shaped their understanding of Christianity. And he, and he talks about this, about a way the black church understands the crucifixion and the resurrection that's different from the white church. I thought I'd close with this because I think this is something that we miss and we can't afford to miss. The resurrected Lord was the crucified Lord, writes James Cone. This is of first importance for Christians to understand. It is typical in a great many Christian traditions to place the emphasis on the resurrection as though the crucifixion was simply an unfortunate event that happened to Jesus on the way to Easter glory. The relatively poor attendance at Holy Week services compared to Easter testifies to this. I'm not sure if that proves it. But But black Protestant churches, as a rule, don't observe Good Friday as do liturgical churches. But there can be no doubt that the risen Lord on Easter Day is the one who entered into the suffering of the black community in every detail of its agony and its humiliation. Therein lies the strength of the message for them. The resurrection is not a reversal of the crucifixion. It does not cancel it out. Rather, it vindicates the crucified one. Cohn does not exactly spell this out as I've just done, but it underlines everything he says. The black church understands and even has songs about how Jesus was hung on a tree and identified even in this public spectacle, this atrocious thing, Jesus even experienced that. Even experienced that. And the resurrected Jesus still has the scars. Right? It's not all better. As a matter of fact, he'll always have the scars because of his radical identification with his people in their sin and their shame. And that's why it's important to understand that we have a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, a priest who fully did the work that was required for us to enter into the Holy of Holies. So it's not a minor little thing. And and actually even looking at Melchizedek, you get insight even into what a big deal Jesus' coming was. It revolutionized how people understood the scriptures. And hopefully it will continue to do that for us.